The sermon text this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to, with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So, so yesterday we uh, considered, remembered 20 years ago, the attacks at 9-11. Uh, time to kind of think on the, the freedoms that we've had at the expense of, of many men and women for our benefit. Now, that is the nature of freedom. You know the expression freedom, of course, is never free. Um, usually someone, men or women, have to suffer and risk themselves for our freedoms, and we are thankful for them and their service. Uh, what applies at the national level, of course, is also true at the spiritual level. When you think about the freedom that the Christian claims to have in, uh, with God, forgiveness of sins and uh, the removal of guilt and shame, that that freedom didn't come without a cost. Now, the cost wasn't borne by those who volunteer, uh, the men and women that are like us, but borne by one who did volunteer and, and took on flesh and dwelt among us and lived a life so that God could li literally say, well done. And that life of righteousness was given to us by faith, and, and our sins and the life not well done was given to him. You know, the gospel itself gives us a freedom, a freedom that we didn't pay for. It was free to us, but it wasn't free. Well, this gospel is what Paul's been contending for in this, in this book of Galatians. Uh, Paul's contending for a, a gospel of freedom. Now, you know, if you've been here over these past few weeks, you've seen uh, that the book of Galatians lays out kind of simply. The first two chapters are really autobiographical. Paul's speaking about himself and his experience. They're unique. It's a snapshot into space and time. These are a little more challenging to preach sometimes because they're historical events that, that there's a, a place and a time that these things happened in his own personal life, and we're kind of peering into history here. In chapters 3 and 4, we're going to look at the gospel proper. What is the gospel? 
And what does it do for the, for the sinner who has faith? And then chapters 5 and 6, we're going to look at, you know, what is the fruit of the gospel, the power of the Spirit working in the heart of the man or the woman? What does it produce in their life? What should be different about us? And, and we'll look at the Spirit of God in some intensity in those chapters. But in 1 and 2, it's autobiographical. So he, he's speaking about, if you remember in chapter 1, he talked about he's defending himself. Paul's always on a defensive posture. Throughout his ministry, he's facing false teachers. And he's defending his apostleship in verse 1 of chapter 1, saying it was from God. So just like the other 12 apostles in, in Jerusalem, mine's the same. It was from God. And then in chapter 11, he defends the gospel. That came from God, too. Remember, through that revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he shares that he's an apostle of God with the gospel of God. And then at the end of chapter 1, he kind of speaks to the nature of his conversion. This persecutor of the faith is now a promoter, a preacher of it. And you know the effect it had on him because he went and planted all those Galatian churches. So now we come to chapter 2, and we hear him making another trip to Jerusalem. Remember, before he went, just saw Peter for 15 days, and yet now he goes again. He goes again after 14 years. So he's been ministering and serving for 14 years after his conversion, and he goes back. Why is he going back now? Well, he's going to go back to defend the freedom of the gospel, that the gospel gives a freedom to us, a freedom to live in peace and joy with God, not hindered by rules and regulations and all kinds of laws. And he's going back to hopefully rejoice with the apostles that they are preaching the same message, they're bringing the same glorious gospel to the nation. So those are two things. It's kind of a smaller sermon, it's kind of a briefer, just two simple points. He's going back to defend the gospel first. Look with me back at those first five verses, if you will. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What is he talking about here? And there's all kinds of stuff going on. Well, we've got to ask the question first, what drove him to go back to Jerusalem after 14 years? Some people think, well, he wants verification that he's preaching the right gospel. He wants affirmation. I don't think that's it at all. He'd been doing it for 14 years. If he wondered about the reliability of his preaching, he would have gone there before then. Now, some people say, well, he just wanted their affirmation or confirmation. Well, he received it direct from the Lord. I'm not going to go to humans to confirm what God has just told me. So I don't think it's that at all. Well, why is he going back after 14 years? Well, he wasn't summoned. They didn't call him back. Well, he went back, it says, because of a revelation. Now, what's this? Is it the revelation on the road to Damascus when he saw Jesus Christ? I don't think so. That was a long time before. We don't know. Other than the Lord prompted him to go back to Jerusalem. Now, why he went back and the reason the Lord would have furnished to him is given to us by Paul's own words when he said, I went back to, 
to set before them to tell these apostles, this is what I've been preaching to the Gentiles. I just want you to know, this is the gospel I have been declaring. But it then says, in order to make sure that he was not running in vain. What's Paul fearing? I, I don't believe Paul is fearing that he might have preached the wrong gospel. Again, he received it from Revelation. He'd been doing it for 14 years. It didn't dawn on him now, hey, I better go back and check. What's he fearing? Well, well you know the storyline if you've been here. These false teachers, presumably from Jerusalem, they came and followed Paul, and they went to the churches that he planted, and they began adding to the gospel that he preached. He preached a gospel of faith in Christ alone saves. It's not faith plus circumcision or making sure you eat kosher or making sure that you keep the Sabbath. There weren't extra requirements added to this gift of salvation. Uh, they accused Paul of being kind of an easy believism guy. Oh, Paul's cutting it. He's kind of given half a gospel. And what Paul's saying is he's going back to, to Jerusalem to make sure that these apostles denounce the teaching. In other words, they're going to put us back into slavery. They're adding circumcision, the practice of circumcision, as part of the gospel as a means of saving. In other words, the question was, how do we get right before God? I don't care where we are in life. That will ultimately be a question the vast majority ask. How can I make sure I'm right with God? Well, Paul's answer would be faith in Christ alone. Their answer would be, well, faith in Christ, of course. But if you have faith in Christ, you would want to do this and this and this and this, circumcision being one of those things. And Paul's saying they're just putting us back into slavery again. We're, we're now coming to God back under law, back under law, to be made right with God. And we see this in Acts chapter 15. Uh, Luke writes, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. They came down from Judea to these Galatian churches and other churches. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You can't be saved. Now, why is Paul saying that he is in fear that he's running in vain? Well, here's the problem. If Paul's preaching a gospel of grace in Christ alone, and then teachers come along and say, well, it is Christ alone, but it's not really alone alone. It's really alone plus circumcision. Then it's going to cause confusion. It's going to, the Galatian churches are going to begin wondering, well, do I get baptized? I'm Gentile. Do I need to be baptized? Do I need to follow food laws? You know how it often is when you're brought to faith or you've heard about people being brought to faith and you're given all these other requirements that you have to make. And you begin to wonder, well, what, which gospel is it? Is it the gospel of Jerusalem? Is it the gospel of Paul? And it began to unsettle people. And so Paul's saying to these apostles, you need to confirm it's a gospel of freedom. In fact, he says in Galatians chapter 5, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. Do you know what he's saying here? This is incredible. If you start layering things on to the gospel that we must do to be made right with God, Christ won't help you at all. He won't be there for you. You're earning your way. You don't need Christ to help you. You have it on your own. This is why he brought Titus. You know, think about Titus. I love Titus. He's a Gentile, and he's not circumcised. Paul's bringing him back 
as kind of a test to the apostles. He's testing. The apostles aren't confirming him. In a way, he's confirming them. So he brings Titus back, an uncircumcised man, and he says, what are you going to do with him? Does he have to be circumcised? Before you have fellowship with him? Before you consider him one of God's people, will he have to be circumcised? So he's testing them. He wants to find out to what degree do they have freedom in the gospel. Well, of course, you read, he was not forced to be circumcised. Now, while I can imagine that was no small relief to Titus, the bigger relief is to us that there is one message for Jew and Gentile. There's one message by faith. Now, if you're, if you're sitting there thinking, what's all the theological wrangling, the big deal? This is a huge deal. This is a very big deal because if there were two Gospels, if the apostles are in contradiction, if there's a Gospel by grace alone and there's a Gospel by grace alone and all these other Jewish boundary markers making Gentiles become Jewish, which one do I follow? It would split the church. It would render them asunder. It would cause confusion. Like one author said it this way, his commission was not derived, this F.F. Bruce, he says, uh, his commission was not derived from Jerusalem, but it could not be executed effectively except in fellowship with Jerusalem. This is Paul. A cleavage between his Gentile mission and the mother church would be disastrous. Christ would be divided. And all the energy which Paul had devoted and hoped to devote to the evangelizing of the Gentile world would be frustrated. And you can imagine what it would be like. You'd have, you'd have two different messages being commuted about the same Christ leading to division. So this is what he's going there for. He's going there, taking Titus with him to find out what do we believe? Is it the gospel plus or is it the gospel period? Which one's it going to be? Now, I know you're thinking that's a historical event, great, 2,000 years ago. Uh, I want to I tell you, though, it was a, it was a huge moment. Uh, but we can learn lessons today from this fight that he came, that he took on. And the first lesson for us, just out of this first section, is simply this, that we need wisdom, we as a church need wisdom as to when to engage in theological controversies. The purity of the gospel is not to be taken for granted. It, it's just not. Every generation, the gospel will be threatened. We need wisdom. You see, Paul here had wisdom. When it came to the gospel, he took the gloves off. He was ready to go down for it. I mean, he was fighting with going back to after all these years of fruitful ministry, you've got to go back and fight for this. This is the gospel. This is a this is serious first-order issue. But you know, with Paul in other situations, with eating or drinking, he was gentle with those who were weak. He didn't force. You know, if it offends you that I eat meat, I won't eat meat. If it offends you that I drink wine, I don't need to drink wine. I'm fine with drinking wine, but if it offends you, I won't do it. So you see a gentleness there on some issues of the faith, and you see the gloves off with another issue of faith. Uh, we need to have wisdom as to know when to enter theological controversy. Back to book we're going to be reading, and staff's going to be reading, is finding the right hills to die on. You know, what, what hills do we die on? You know, Al Mohler is a president of Southern Theological Seminary in Louisville, and he wrote this article about theological triage. It's, I think, a term he coined. You know, we think of triage usually in a medical context where, you know, there's all these 
uh, suffering people and doctors come in and they have to they have to prioritize who gets handled first. The guy with a broken arm may not take first place over the one that's hemorrhaging. And so there's a triage, there's a quick ordering of what's most important to save the most amount of people. So he takes that idea of prioritizing and brings it into the theological world, and he says there's a theological triage, which means there are some first-order issues that we need to be concerned about. The divinity of Christ, the triune God, justification by faith. Those are first-order issues, and we go all out at making sure those are protected and maintained. But there are second-order issues. They're, they're important issues. They're essential to the health of the church. It may be ecclesiology. It may be baptism, the Lord's Supper. Some of us may find other communities of faith better in terms of how they handle church structure. But these aren't a dividing line where we break fellowship with people or that they're not of the faith, although you may worship in a different context. And then there's these third-level issues. These are important issues, but they're not worthy of dividing the church over. Eschatology, the millennium, these different issues that there's been differences on, you wouldn't have to leave the church over those. There's, there's room, if you will, to hold different opinions. And then there's a fourth tier. Not uh, Mueller, Mueller only has three tiers, but there's a fourth tier that has been added, which are other things. The Puritans used to call it other things. These kind of disputable matters. How many songs do we sing? How often do we celebrate communion? These are not essential to the gospel. They're not important. And, and we can live together forever having differences of opinion. So we need wisdom to know what is a first, second, third, even fourth tier issue. Uh, because just like Paul, so will we be seeking to defend the freedom that we have. And, and, and then secondly, I would say that, that we must always engage. Another lesson we learn is that we have to engage in in looking at the gospel and making sure that we maintain the freedom associated with it. As I said, Paul was always fighting throughout his ministry, fighting with false teachers. That's why he says, he says, I did not yield in submission for even a moment. He didn't give way to these people that wanted to add layers to the gospel. Didn't even give way. Sometimes they think, we'll just play along with them. We can win them over time. No way. I'm not going to do it. Not over the gospel. There's no compromise there. He tells Timothy the same thing. He says, guard the good deposit. The nature of Christ coming in the flesh, taking our sins, dying, being raised to life, that that alone captures our attention. This is what we do every generation we need to do this. Every generation thinking through the gospel. You know, there's something in us, though, that we love to add layers to it. We believe in the gospel, and then we think, well, but it's important that you dress a certain way. Or we believe in the gospel, it's important that you eat a certain way or things you don't drink or movies you don't see. And they're good for us, they're important, they help us walk in holiness. And then we begin to think, well, they're going to be good for other people to do. And we start bringing our ideas as to what helps us walk in holiness, which may be right and good for us. And then we make them appropriate for everybody else to do. And then we begin to discriminate whether they do what we think is helpful to do. I mean, we do this. We, we do it in terms of how we look at classes of people, races, education, the political views. You know, we, we look at, did they have the right spiritual experience? Did they speak about the gospel in the right way? You know, we have all, are, are, they, are, are they more free? 
And does that scare you? We look at them and discriminate? Or we relativize sin. We look at sin, well, you know, the guy struggling with pride is different. The one that struggles with homosexuality, he's really the bad egg. And we begin to relativize in our own minds what sin is really objectionable to God and what sin is not. And we discriminate. And, and this, is, this is harmful. This is harmful to the church. Because it begins to layer this gospel on. The true gospel is faith alone in Christ alone. What comes out of a life that's been transformed by the gospel, it's going to vary. It's going to look different based upon our background, temperament, the experiences. If Some of us have come out of a train wreck of life. And, and, and so the trajectory of our growth in Christ will look different than those who have been raised in a Christian family and, and really led well. It's going to look different. So we have to fight for the... Freedom of the gospel. It doesn't have to be the gospel. And these things as well. And, and then the third lesson I would pull out of this is simply to delight in the freedom that we have. We ought to be happy over this. We ought to be glad that Paul fought for the freedom. You know, that, that he fought for the freedom from cultural additives. You know, the, the gospel transcends culture. It transcends culture. It, it, it will look American when you're in America. But that doesn't make the gospel the gospel. So when I was in church history, I came across this picture, the great picture of these Scottish missionaries. God bless them. Scottish missionaries, they were uh, missionaries in the Congo. And they're the picture of them. The, 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 the missionaries are dressed, of course, as they, this is like a 19th century picture, and they're dressed in their wool suits with ties and everything. And they look sharp as all get out. And then you see the Congolese, of course, they're all black, and they're all dressed in wool suits. And all of them are in wool suits. Now, I, I get, I get, if you're in the Scottish Highlands, it's cold and it's rainy and damp and the wind's blowing, wool works well. In the Congo, it does not work well. Uh, that's a cultural additive that was unnecessary, and it can confuse the gospel. I know when, when I got away from a jacket and tie, it rattled a pan or two, and, uh, and, and I understand it because in our culture, wearing a coat and a tie makes sense, respectful to God, we're coming, we're coming to worship God, and it seems right, we wear them at weddings, we wear them at funerals, and, and it's appropriate and right. Now, it's obvious that I don't need to tell you that Jesus didn't wear one of those, uh, but the point of it is it can fit in this culture, and it can be appropriate, but it's not necessary. And I think that's what we're talking about, that the gospel doesn't need to be layered on with cultural additives that we then judge everybody else by, whether they are doing what we think is culturally right with the gospel. What it does is it distracts us. Am I doing these secondary things and I'm not looking at the one who did everything for me? It also can muddy up our emotional freedom. You know, the gospel proclaims you're forgiven. You're made right with God. You have no guilt. You stand in the clear. that You can die in one moment and you'll stand before him and he's going to look at you because of the merits of Christ. But it, when we layer on the gospel with these things that you ought, should, need to do, then we begin measuring our own acceptance with God based upon how we're keeping these, this code of whatever ethic you have. And, and we begin to find our acceptance based upon our performance in these things. And I would simply say, welcome to the treadmill of life. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. I mean, we go back and forth depending upon the week or the month that we've had. Or if you have a major explosion with your spouse or your friend, 
all of a sudden now you, you know, your, your acceptance meter begins tilting towards the, towards the red. So Paul did us a huge favor here in fighting for the freedom of the gospel. This isn't a freedom to sin, obviously, but it's a freedom to look at Christ and him alone and not Christ and circumcision and dietary laws or whatever list you want to add to it. So that's the first thing Paul did. He defends the freedom of the gospel. We want to walk in that. We want to enjoy it, delight in it. Uh, but also, notice what he does. He wants to rejoice with the gospel, with the apostles over the gospel. Look with me at 6-9. to nine, Because in 6-9 to nine you see their response to his, his journey to them. It says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, they perceived the grace that was given to me that gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. This is why we read through the scriptures repeatedly. When you read that, you feel like you have marbles in your mouth and you don't know the last sentence from the sentence you're reading. So we've got to read these things over and over and pull them apart. So what he's saying simply this is this idea of those who seemed influential you know, three times he says it in this passage, it seems like Paul's mocking the apostles. Oh, those guys seemed influential. I don't think that's it. I think he's using the terms of the Judaizers. These false teachers that had come in, they looked at the original 12 and said, they're the influential ones. Paul, not so much. But these other 12, the way they say it, we ought to do it. They're the, and Paul's saying, they don't, it doesn't mean anything to me. God shows no partiality. God doesn't have groups and subgroups of apostles. They're all the same. We're preaching all the same gospel. Uh, I just wanted to clear that up because it can be confusing. But the point of it is they added nothing to me. So what Paul's saying is the gospel that I set before them, this is what I'm preaching to the Gentiles, they didn't change it. They didn't edit it. They didn't add anything. They didn't subtract anything. They accepted it. They said that's the same gospel that Jesus Christ gave to us in the flesh you got the same gospel on the road to Damascus. We're preaching the same gospel. Not just that. That's huge. Not just that. But they said, we see that God has entrusted to you this ministry. They've affirmed Paul's ministry. So now, that kind of shock wave going through the Galatian churches, which could have ripped the church asunder in the first century, now has been sealed up. And it says they gave him the right hand of fellowship. In other words, we're in partnership with you, Paul, all of us together. You're going to go to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. You're going to the Gentiles, or the Jews, the circumcised. So the same gospel going. And notice who Paul gives the credit to. This wasn't Paul's persuasive ability or the apostles being really bright. Notice what it says there in verse 8. He, God, who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. The same God bringing the same gospel to two different groups. So what do we take away from this? Well, first, the gospel is the same throughout the scriptures. There's no different gospels among different apostles. Sometimes 
some fancy scholars may say to you, well, hold it now. You know, you got Paul preaching a gospel of grace, but you got James over here preaching a gospel of works. And so which one is it? Do we do the work or do we do the faith? Well, remember now, that's an easy, that's an easy accusation to make. You have to consider the audience. Paul is talking to people who were sliding towards legalism, and so he's promoting grace to them. They're sliding to rule-keeping as a means of finding acceptance with God, and he's saying, no way, it doesn't work. James, he's not speaking to legalists, he's speaking to hedonists. He's speaking to those people that just want to say, yeah, I believe, and that's all I need to do. And my life doesn't matter because I just believe I'm good to go. And so it's two different groups. It's like Paul went to the older brother of the prodigal son to preach, and James is going to the younger brother of the prodigal son. So it's the same gospel, but they're engaging different groups of people over different issues. So the gospel's the same. It's united. But also, secondly, the gospel is what unites us. Now, this is really significant to me, particularly in these days. The gospel, when you and I believe in the gospel, for the Christian here, and by the way, this is how you become a Christian. You don't just morph into it. You, you actively engage believing that Jesus Christ is the one from God to reconcile men and women to himself. You trust in him. You, you actively put your trust. I, I'm trusting in his work. You're not looking to yourself. You're, you're trusting him with everything you have, your future, your future in this life, your future forever, and you're trusting him alone for your salvation, not anything that you're bringing to it. And you repent of your sins. You know, repentance means you, you were living this way for yourself, and you turn and you begin living for God. There has to be that turn. But when we believe in the gospel together, we have more in unity with one another than you do with your own blood relatives who don't believe the same message. It unites colors. It unites countries. It unites cultures across the board. When Carol and I were overseas, and um, we had this church that we were leading in Austria, there were up to sometimes dozen different nationalities from the Middle East, from, at the time, the USSR, Africa, and the Far East. They all were there. And when we preached, they translate into all these different languages. And it was incredible the unity that you felt with these brothers and sisters, radically different from you in every way possible, even the way they look, the way they act, the cultures. And you felt related to them felt drawn to them. You knew them. If you've been a Christian for long, you know what I'm speaking about. So that's what the gospel does. It unites us. Now, we live in a day and age where everything is getting polarized in our culture, right? We can't agree on climate, on politics, on race, on international involvement, on masks, on vaccines, on schooling. I mean, we're polarizing on everything. But none of these issues are strictly first-order theology. It's all cultural issues. They are wisdom issues. They are political issues. But these are the things that are beginning to, to form some fault lines in the churches. Friends, we can't have that. I mean, I feel like we're just in the harbor right now. And if we start having trouble sailing in the harbor, well, let me tell you, the days ahead, when we get out in open water, it's a lot worse. And so if we don't find ourselves just, sh just shackling ourselves to the gospel and the unity that we have in Christ,
holding together on these things that we hold near and dear, and recognizing that while these issues that I just mentioned, they are significant and they are important, but they're not enough to separate us. That's incredibly important. That reveals to that world the unity of the gospel and the glory of the gospel. And the last thing I would say is that uh, this picture of unity shows us that we partner in the gospel. Think about it for a minute. There's one gospel, but they're going, Paul is going to the Gentiles, Peter to the, to the Jews. Totally different cultures, and yet it's the same gospel. What it shows us is the unity, the partnership. We need to be in cooperation with other people. This is why we, we prayed for Faith Baptists up in Youngsville. We prayed for them. We, Stephen Wade is a wonderful guy. We prayed for him to preach well, and the people would listen well and learn. We're in cooperation with others. They may do things different than us. Their, ecclesio- their ecclesiology may be a bit different than us. I, I like ours better. But, but, but the reality of it is, it's not that big of a deal. They're preaching the gospel. They're doing a good work, and we thank God for them. What this shows us is the need for, as long as you keep the gospel the same, there can be variations about how we do things. Now, of course, the devil's in the details on that, but we need to talk about it. But there are, there's variations that can be done as long as the gospel remains the same. So we want to rejoice. That's why we train interns to go to other churches. And those churches will be different than our church, but that's all right. They're doing a good work as long as they're preaching the same gospel. So that's what we see here. And that gives us a biblical basis for why we want to cooperate with others. But notice how he ends. He ends on, but remember this. He says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So this is interesting to slide in here to remember the poor. We've just talked about the universal gospel, the glory of the gospel. And, and then he says, let's, you know, while we can be different, let's be the same on this issue. Remember the poor. Now, in this context, it would have been the Judean churches. This probably took place in 44, 46 A.D. By the way, this event probably is found in Acts chapter 11, not 15, the Jerusalem Council. Probably, because if it was Acts 15, then they would have had a letter from the elders, and Paul wouldn't have had to write a letter to the Galatian churches. If you're interested in more of that, let me know. It's kind of an interesting debate. Uh, but, But... the Judean churches were suffering a famine, and they needed help. And so Peter was saying to Paul, as you go to these Gentile churches, which were richer at the time, don't forget the poor. They need your help. Now, when you talk about the poor, uh, it's really a can of snakes. It's really hard to get your mind around the poor. Poverty is more than financial. Let's start right up front with that. Poverty, there is, you know, there's a book called uh, When Helping Hurts. It's a great book on bringing a more balanced view to caring for those who are in poverty. It's a great book. It talks about poverty being not just financial, but it being spiritual, right? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's speaking about those who are, are poverty in spirit. They, they're weighed down by their sins. They know their need for a savior. There's also poverty in relationships. You know, some of our older folks, and when you get older, the fear is that you get forgotten, and you don't know, nobody comes to see you. Nobody talks to you. Nobody asks your opinion anymore. There's a certain poverty associated with that relational joy that you once had when you were in the prime of life, and now you're not. And so there's, a, there's kind of a, a dearth of friendships and connections. So, so the poor is a much broader issue. But he here, I think, is speaking about financial poor. Now, you know, when you give to the poor, 
uh, you know, we want to remember them. Now, it, it's dangerous, you know. Many times people have come up to me and said, hey, uh, give me 10, you got 10, 15 bucks. And I said, well, you know, let's go to the grocery store right now. And I said, come on, let's go. And they said, ah, no, I just, I just need the cash. I said, I know why you need the cash. I'm well, if you're hungry, I'll, I'm willing to feed you. We can go to the store. No, no, no. I said, no, no, no. One guy chased down the street. I was really angry. I chased him. I said, you said you needed, you needed money, you needed food. And it was right in Charleston. And, um, but the point of it is that we want, we want to be careful on just giving. But we do want to remember them. You see the guy on the street, and you brush them all off. And you say, oh, the guy's just you know, got a drug habit and he needs cash. I don't want to be so casual. Uh, we, we want to remember them. Carol would always make up bags of food. So anytime she pulled up, she'd give them bags of food. Or she had $5 gift cards to McDonald's in her car, and she'd hand them out. The kids even do it now. My children do it. And, and, and just a way of, we, we, you can imagine, we're in Raleigh, which is an economically strong city. We're an economically strong church. We don't want to forget the poor. And let it begin by, God, give us grace to know, A, how to handle them well in a way that doesn't promote a problem but actually addresses a problem. And let's think broader than just financial poor. Let's think relationally poor and, and spiritually poor. But, but it's, it's a good way to end. He's saying at the end of the day, we are together and we're free. But let's not forget those, particularly who don't have what we have. So, so here you, you have this last bit of kind of autobiographical writing that Paul is addressing. We have one more piece in a couple weeks. Um, but the freedom that we have is to be delighted in. So let's just take a moment and silently confess to God, perhaps if we have added things to the gospel, let's repent of that, and, uh, and let's rejoice and delight over what he has done for us in Christ. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.